Good morning. How many of you are glad to be here today? All right. You guys look great. Why don't you, uh, why don't you turn to your neighbor and tell him you really look nice today. We do that All right, real quick. All right. Do it in the campuses, okay? All right, all right, all right, all right. How many of you? Have you that? That felt really good. Have you? That felt a little creepy, okay? All right. Guy over here was asking for a date, I think. You know. Well, I want to welcome those of you who are joining us right now uh, from an offsite campus, or on the internet, or in the chapel or warehouse here in this building. Uh, we're glad that you guys uh, are along also. Hey, before we get into what we're going to do today, let me let me do a little, uh, tell you what's coming up, okay? Uh, I'm very excited. I'm always excited. You guys know that. But I'm, I'm excited about next week. Uh, I'm going to be speaking, and you're going to help me. Uh, I decided I was on my way to coffee uh, at Starbucks this week, and, I, and God spoke. How many of you know that God speaks around co- Starbucks? You know what I mean? It was within a few, few feet. And I, I was thinking, and I thought, here, here was the idea for next weekend. We're going to talk about, the title of the message is going to be Thanks for Giving. Think about that. Thanks for Giving. Thanksgiving. You got that? You guys get it? I thought it was really cool. I knew it was God. And, uh, and so I'm going to be talking about being thankful for people that have sowed into our lives and who have given to us. And I need your help. Uh, I did a post on the city. Go on the city and take a look at that. It gives you all the details. But I'd like for you guys here and in the campuses to make like a 30-second video if your life has been impacted by somebody here, okay? And we're, I know we've been impacted all over the place, but for my message's sake, for somebody here that's maybe a pastor or smog leader or, you know, something that's happened here at Seacoast, like you make a 30-second video and then at the end just say, hey, Seacoast, thanks for giving. Does that make sense? Let's say that together. Hey, Seacoast. Thanks for giving. So next week's message depends on you, okay? I'm going to do my part, but you guys could really screw it up by, you know, by not doing your part. And so I had no pressure, but I need your help this week. Okay, so that's next weekend. Now, um, the following weekend, we're going to have as a guest speaker, Chuck Colson. Has anybody heard of Chuck Colson? Chuck was, uh, before some of you were born, Chuck was... Uh, part of the Nixon administration. He was a big part of the Watergate uh, deal. He went to prison, uh, committed his life to Christ, uh, has created an incredible uh, ministry out of that. He's one of the intellectual thinkers and writers of Christendom today. And uh, Chuck's going to be here. He doesn't do churches uh, that much. He speaks at major conventions and stuff. But he's going to come be a part. So I want you to, to be a part of that and uh, uh, maybe bring a friend. That's in two weeks. Okay. Now today, um, we are concluding uh, our series on the church in your house, um, the, the book of Philemon, and uh, we've kind of gone through and torn it apart and put it back together and about a normal guy named Philemon who loved Jesus, who had and hosted a church in his house. And we've talked about how that happens, maybe how the church starts, about how you reach outside of your house. In fact, that's what we're about, is taking the church outside of the building, the house or whatever, and transforming communities. When we planned this series, we thought uh, one guy we would like to come and help us to share is a guy named Mike Breen. Um, Several reasons. Number one, Mike Breen is a fog. Can you guys say fog together? Fog. 
friend of Greg, okay? And so I've introduced you to some of my friends, and I've done okay. Would you agree with that? You like the friends that we brought in. Three people have liked the friends, but uh, we do. But most importantly, uh, Mike uh, was the rector, the pastor at um, uh, St. Thomas Church in Sheffield, England for a number of years. And that church kind of was a pioneer in uh, community transformation as it relates to missional communities and people actually uh, getting in the community and making a major, major difference. Uh, Today, Mike leads a worldwide movement in that. He's been a blessing to us behind the scenes, and we're introducing him uh, in front of the scenes today. Uh, He and the ministry he's a part of is going to be partnering with us for quite some time in the future. And uh, I wanted you to meet him. I wanted you to hear what he has to say. I think you're going to understand the Bible just a little bit more as a result of uh, what Mike's going to share with us today. So will you give a great big Seacoast welcome to Mike Breen as he comes? (laughs) Greg, I'm so glad that I'm only being introduced three times over the weekend because uh, by the end of the uh, weekend, if it had been any more introductions, I'd have sounded like the Archangel Gabriel. (laughs) That uh, That was very gracious of you. Thank you. It's my pleasure to be with you today, a privilege to spend time with your team, your staff, your pastors. I spend time with uh, teams and leaders all over the world, and I want you to know, as I'm sure you already suspect, that your pastors, your team, your staff are world-class and truly outstanding, and I hope you know that. If we're going to change our communities, then we need to know that the Lord has equipped us with the gospel, with the tools of the gospel, so that we in community can change our community. Jesus never sent individuals unless he really had to. Generally, the way that Jesus worked was that he sent a team, he sent a community. And in that community, he gave all of the resources necessary to change the wider community. Today, we're going to look at the principal resource that Jesus puts into our hands as he calls us to join him in his mission to the world. The principal resource, of course, is the Bible. The average American home has something like 3.2 Bibles in the home. But the interesting thing is this, if you make any analysis of the understanding that people have of the Bible, even though they own so many copies, there is very little genuine understanding of what the Bible actually means. What does the Bible mean? That's what we're going to look at today, and hopefully God will equip us and, and in doing that give us access to this most important of tools as we follow him in this call to the world. So, the Bible. Very often we look at the Bible as something that really a clever person, an academic, an intellectual needs to give us access to. A little bit like other forms of high art. Yesterday, Sally and I were walking through Charleston 
and uh, she noticed a, pa- a, a poster on, on the wall and she said, um, Oh, Mike, they've got a ballet in Charleston. Now, guys will know what I mean by this. Inside, I'm going, oh, no. <laughs> Outside, I said, really, darling, that's interesting. <laughs> she, said, um, she said, I would love to go to the Charleston Ballet. Inside, I'm thinking, oh, Lord. I mean, have you seen what those guys wear? <laughs> I mean, it's barely legal. They need to wear some britches. You see, we, we look at, at ballet, or maybe it's just me, I don't know. You look at ballet and you think, I mean, honestly, I don't know what it means. The scriptures are similar. We, we feel somewhat at a distance from its meaning. It's a little bit like Shakespeare. Shakespeare's in English. Everybody knows that it's important. Everybody knows it's wonderful and beautiful. But really, what does it mean? To be or not to be? That is the question. Whether it be nobler in the mind to suffer the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune or take arms in a sea of trouble and by opposing end them. I mean, honestly, what does that mean? I have no idea what that means. (laughs) Or maybe the opening lines of Richard III to the, the young crippled king who begins with his soliloquy. Now is the winter of our discontent. Made glorious summer by this sun of York and all the clouds that have lowered upon our house into the deep bosom of the ocean are buried. I mean, I have absolutely no idea. <laughs> what does that mean? It's beautiful. It's kind of interesting, especially if there's a funny English guy at the front kind of pretending that he is Richard III. <laughs> the Bible is basically about two things. There are two fundamental themes to the Bible. The first is about relationship. The second is about representation. It's relationship with God that the Bible speaks about. And from that relationship with God, relationship with everyone else. Once we have a relationship with God, we then know how to understand our relationships with everyone else in the world. And having received the opportunity to have a relationship with God, then we know how to represent him. The theological words, the words that you'll find in the Bible are covenant and kingdom. Covenant means a relationship where we become one with God. Kingdom means that he is the king. And as we become one with him, so we in his kingdom represent his kingship. It's about being in relationship. It's about doing something with that relationship. Being and doing. It's about relationship, representation, covenant and kingdom, being and doing. When I was a theological student in London, I I was walking through Hyde Park one day and... um, The English would put it this way, I was caught short. It meant that I needed to find a bathroom quickly. And um, I I, I couldn't find one in Hyde Park. And I I just thought, well, you know, maybe one of these trees would suffice. But I thought, no, I'm going to be ordained soon. I don't think that would go over well. So I I, I waited, I persisted, I had some patience. And uh, eventually I found what we call a public convenience. And there inside the public convenience was one of the early gifts of my life. An urban poet had left his mark on the wall. 
On the wall, he had written these words. Plato said, to be is to do. Aristotle said, to do is to be. Sinatra said, do be, do be, do be, do. <laughs> the Bible says, be, do, be, do, be, do, be, do. It's about two things. It's about being in relationship with God and then doing something with that relationship as we represent him to the world. If you go to the very first chapter of the Bible, there you'll see God in his royal courtroom in heaven, surrounded by all of the courtiers of heaven, the angels, and he's coming to the end of his great work of creation. It's the sixth day, and he speaks with royal language, and he says, let us make man in our image, in our likeness. Let us make them male and female. Let's make them in our image and let's make them to rule. So at the very beginning, on the day that you and I were created, we were created for two things. We were created in God's image to rule on his behalf. We were created in his image. What that really means is this, that as he made us from the clay of the earth, as it's portrayed in chapter 2, God leaves the imprint of his presence upon us. The word image is probably better translated as impression or imprint. And so God makes us and leaves his handprint upon us. And leaving his handprint upon us means that we're made so that we should never be further than his arm's length away from him. But of course, Adam and Eve, they pull away from God's hand. And the impression made by his presence is now empty. And the story of humanity from that point to this is the story of the emptiness within that only God can fill. Relationship was right at the beginning. God made us to be connected to him. God made us to be relating to him. God made us to be one with him. And in making us to be one with him, he made us so that we could rule on his behalf to represent him. And the story of the Bible is how God wins us back into relationship and then sets us as his representatives. And the amazing thing is this. Those two themes, like, like the fabric, like the, the warp and woof, the warp, as we would say in England, the warp and weft of revelation. All of it is presented to us by the end of the first book, Genesis. There are many heroes, many characters, many amazing personalities in the first book of the Bible. But, but the ones that we need to focus on to understand these themes are Abraham and Sarah and Joseph. Abraham and Sarah and Joseph, if you add up all of the verses in the first book, Genesis, really are the main characters. Abraham and Sarah are called by God to come into relationship with him. He, he fashions a covenant with them. He says that you are now one with me. And then in chapter 17, he says, Abraham, that's his name initially in the story, Abraham. He says, Abraham, I'm going to change your name to Abraham. No longer will you be called exalted father. Now you will be the father of many nations. And Sarai, that was her name at the beginning of the story. 
Sarai, your name is now going to be Sarah. Yes, you're going to stay a princess. But now you're a princess of heaven, not just a princess of the earth. And the, the old commentators on the text tell us that the name Yahweh, the name for Lord in Scripture, it's as though the Lord says, I'm going to take two of the letters of my name and add them to your names so that your identity changes forever. No longer are you Abraham, now you're Abraham. No longer are you Sarai, now you're Sarah. And you change your name because you have my name added to your name. Now you and I have a relationship and it means that you change forever. Isn't that wonderful? The next great character is Joseph. Joseph is this young man with talents and gifts. He's good looking. Everybody either loves him or hates him. His father favors him. His brothers, they really despise him. His real problem is this. He is full of pride. He has this amazing gift from God added to all of the other talents that God has given him. He has a prophetic gift. And one day he says to his brothers, he says, guys, I, I had this vision. And it's a vision of, of sheaves of wheat. And they were all bowing down to me. It's as though you one day will bow down to me. Don't you think that's cool? <laughs> and his brother said, no, we don't think it's cool. We think you're stupid. And then he says to his father, it's as though he's, he's not put off, you know, when you're proud, proud you're, you're really kind of blinded. He says to his father, he says, Dad, I had this dream. And the dream is of 11 stars and the sun and the moon. And they were, they were kind of all revolving around me. It's almost like you and mom and the, and the boys, it, it's almost like you're revolving around me. It's like I'm the center of the universe. It's kind of great, isn't it? Very similar to most other 17-year-old boys, if I uh, know that attitude correctly. <laughs> and his father rebukes him. Well, you know the story. His brothers hate him so much that they rough him up. They throw him in a well and then they sell him to their cousins, the Ishmaelites. And they take him to Egypt. And there he's sold as a, as a slave in the house of Potiphar, the head of security for the king of Egypt. And there in the home of Potiphar, Potiphar's wife takes a shine to him, tries to seduce him, but he rejects her invitations. And so she, she says that he has abused her and molested her. And so now he's taken from being simply a slave and, and thrown into prison on top of all of the other things that he's suffered. And there in this prison within the compound of the head of security for Pharaoh, the most powerful man in the world, the VIP prisoners are kept. The butler, the baker, the candlestick maker. Not the candlestick maker, just the butler and the baker. And one morning... Joseph comes in with breakfast and he sees that they're downcast and he says, guys, what's the problem? They say, we, we had these dreams and they're really troubling us. Now, Joseph has been 11 years away from his home. Joseph has had all kinds of privations and difficulties. But unfortunately, he's still the center of his universe. 
He says to the butler and the baker, he says, tell me your dreams. I'll interpret them. Well, they tell him their dreams. He gives them the interpretation. The butler goes free. The baker sadly is executed. And Joseph is forgotten. You see, God can't use him yet because he's not yet surrendered. He's not yet come to a place of submission where God is at the center of his universe and he can be God's representative. Two years later, Pharaoh has his own dreams, dreams of carnivorous cows eating other cows, dreams of wizened wheat devouring lush, fat wheat. He shares these dreams with his counselors, his butlers there. No one can understand them. No one knows what they mean. But the butler says, do you know, I'm reminded today. There was a young man in prison. Maybe he can help. And so the king says, well, go and get him. So they clean him up and they bring him in. And this is the moment that Joseph has been waiting for. This is the moment that God has been waiting for. Yes, he has a relationship with Joseph, but can he use him as his representative? He brings him in before Pharaoh, and this is what Pharaoh says in Genesis 41:15. Pharaoh said to Joseph, I had a dream, and no one can interpret it. But I have heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. This is the watershed of his life. This is the moment. What will he do? I cannot do it, Joseph replied to Pharaoh. But God will give Pharaoh the answer he desires. I can't do it. It's almost as though there's a great sigh of relief in heaven. Now Joseph can fulfill his destiny to represent God to the world. Immediately, Pharaoh takes the ring from his finger while speaking to his counselors. He says, is there anyone in Egypt like this man in whom the spirit of God lives? He takes the ring from his finger, the ring of authority, and gives it to Joseph. He takes the chain of power and puts it on Joseph's neck. And he says, now you represent me. Now you stand in my place. If you say it, it's as if I would say it. You're now my representative. And in that picture and in that story, we see what it is that God wants to do with each one of us. God wants to give you the badge and the gun of his kingship. The authority and the power of his kingship. He wants to give you the opportunity to represent him. But he's looking for people who he can use. He's looking for people who will submit to him so that they can have authority, who will surrender to him so that they can have power. The first power that Joseph was called to exercise was the power of forgiveness. He had to forgive his brothers and rescue them and bring them to Egypt. So, where are you with this? Are you able to be used by God yet? Are you yet in the place where the king, the king of the universe, is able to give you authority and power to represent him in your family, your workplace, among your neighbors and friends? 
Well, truly that's God's plan for your life. And of course, being his representative is based upon being in relationship with him. And the relationship depends upon identity. God chooses to make a relationship with us. And in making a relationship with us, he gives us his identity. He says, you're now one with me. You're now connected to me deeply. You and I, you and I are in covenant. And out of that identity, you'll begin to live out that identity and behave in a way that is consistent with that identity. It's my daughter Libby today that's running my PowerPoint display. Now, she could do it just because I asked her to. But actually what she's doing is she's doing it because she's my daughter. She's doing something for me, not because she has to, or because she feels like she has to obey me, but because she's my daughter. And she's acting in a way that is consistent with being my daughter. You see, that's what obedience is. Obedience in relation to God is simply this. Acting in a way that the children of God would act if they knew they were children of God. You're just a child of God. And so you act that way. He's our father. And because he's our father, we know that our identity is tied up with him. We're his children. And because we're his children, we choose to do the things that children do. So how would we put all of this together? The Bible is this amazing book with these two great themes. But, but really it has to be something that penetrates our heart and changes our life. Well, just a little while back I, I wrote a story. And it, it's a story that appears to be written for children. But I can assure you it's not a children's story. It's a story about a little pig. Here he is. Once upon a time, there was a little pig. And he loved being a little pig. He lived in the pigsty with all of his friends. And he loved rolling around in the mud. He loved eating all of the pig slops. He thought being a pig was the best life you could possibly ever have. One day, whilst he was just going around his little piggly business... He noticed, he noticed through the fence, the shepherd walking through the farmyard. And behind the shepherd were his sheep. And he looked at the sheep and he thought to himself, I wonder what it's like to be a sheep. Well, little did he know, the shepherd and the sheep, they walked through the farmyard every day. He'd just never noticed them before, but the next day he noticed them again. And he thought, I wonder what it's like to be a sheep. And every day... The same question came to his mind until the question turned into a longing. He, he wanted to be a sheep, but he was a pig. How could he be a sheep? He, he looked at the way that the shepherd and the sheep, they, they interacted. They, they loved each other. He, he just loved what it was that the shepherd represented, but he was a pig. How could he ever be a sheep? Well, one day, his life changed because the shepherd came to his pigsty and he looked over the wall and he said hello little pig and the little pig said <laughs> which for those of you who know pigly language means hello shepherd 
the shepherd said, little pig, would you like to become a little sheep? Well, the little pig thought about it for a little while and then said, now you're beginning to pick up the language I know. So maybe I don't have to tell you, but what that means in Piggly is, yes, please. Well, the shepherd said, well, little pig, what has to happen is this. I have to take out your little piggly heart. And I have to give you the heart of a sheep. It's a simple operation. And when you have that heart of a sheep, it'll begin to beat. And in time you will turn from being the pig that everyone sees now to the sheep that you want to be. You'll, you'll discover that wool will begin to come out of your little piggly hide. Your, your little corkscrew tail will become the little shaking tail of the lamb. And as the heart continues to beat, so the transformation will be complete. And you'll go from being a pig to a sheep. But it begins from the inside when I change your heart. Would you like that? And the little pig said, yes, please. So the operation was done and the little pig began to follow the shepherd. And he loved it. He loved it. Even though he looked like a pig, he knew that on the inside he was a sheep. And he frolicked in the pasture and he loved to eat the grass and he loved hanging out with the shepherd. It was wonderful. And as time went on, he noticed that little changes began to happen. His little piggly hide began to get wool on it. His little corkscrew tail began to change. One day, he was following the shepherd through the farmyard. And his old friends called to him. Hey, little pig. For some reason, they talk like London gangsters. <laughs> hey, little pig, what are you doing with that shepherd? You're not a little sheep, you're a little pig. Come on. We're going to have a great time tonight. We're going to roll around in the mud. We're going to eat some fantastic slops. It's going to be like the old times. You can come and hang out with all the boys. Come on, little pig. Well, the little sheep who used to be a little pig didn't want to go. But he began to think about it. And somehow the memories of rolling around in the mud, it seemed really quite attractive. And it seemed really quite attractive, the idea of eating those slops again. He had great memories of being a pig. So under cover of darkness... He went down to the pigsty again and he hung out with his friends and he rolled around in the mud and he ate the slops and in the morning he felt terrible. The wool that had begun to emerge from his little piggly hide had all become matted. He was covered in mud and he had slop breath. <laughs> and he thought, you know, I've ruined it now. Because I can never go back. Look at me. Well, later in the day, the shepherd came by and said, Little sheep, what are you doing there? And the little sheep, who used to be a little pig, looked up at the shepherd and said, Bah! 
which is, I'm very sorry, shepherd. The shepherd said, well, what we need to do, obviously, you're not supposed to be here. We need to go and get you cleaned up. So let's get down to the stream, wash you off, get you back in the field with the rest of the sheep. Let's not talk about this anymore. I can see you're sorry. Let's leave it behind. Well, the little pig couldn't believe his ears. Of course, he's a little sheep now. And so he joins the flock again. And it's not the last time that he goes back to the sty, but next time he went back to the sty, he went with his friends and with the shepherd to explain to the other little pigs how they could have their heart transplanted too. And he lived the life of a little sheep. And before long, the transformation was complete. Does that speak to you at all? Has that transformation started in your life? Has that transformation begun in your life and you found that you've gone back to the old life that was represented by those old ways? When I pray now, I'd like you to consider that. And as I pray, I'd like you just to speak to the Lord with an open heart. If today you know that you need that heart transplant. If today you know that you've been striving to be something that you can't be, a bit like a pig wearing a woolen sweater. If you know that you've been trying to be something you can't be because the transformation's never begun on the inside, then bring that to the Lord as we pray and ask Him to make the change and it will happen today. And if today, as you pray with me, you realize that you've been back to the pig pen, then simply say sorry. And the shepherd will simply say this. Well, come on then. You're not supposed to be there. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you, Lord, that it's so clear, so simple. It's about having a relationship with you where we learn to represent you to the world. Lord, we pray today that for each one of us, we would be sure that that transformation had taken place. We pray, Lord, that today, for any here who have not had the heart transplant that only you can do, that, Lord, today they would experience it. That today, Lord, hearts would be changed and Lord, today, where, where we've strayed, where we've wandered, Lord, we pray that today we would be absolutely confident that your invitation is the same and there's no condemnation. That you set us free from all of that. You cleanse us and you set us back on the right path. And we pray, Lord, that as we walk with you on that path and follow you, our shepherd, we, Lord, would be those who reveal to the world what it means to be in relationship with you and represent you as the King. Amen.